you're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we introduce you to folks involved in the sports world or, of course, the celebrities that have a love for the sports world. This week, it's somebody that's involved in the sports world. His name is Tim Brando. If you're my age or younger, you probably don't remember too much sports before Tim Brando was part of it. If you're a little older, he probably came into the landscape when you were a little younger. There's a generation of kids that don't know that there was television before ESPN. ESPN came into existence in 1980. Tim Brando was there almost at the beginning, whether it was doing studio shows or college football. It's one of those voices that you hear, and you may not be able to immediately know the name, but it's just comfortable. You've heard it over and over on college football or college basketball or somewhere in a studio, and you just recognize it immediately. It's the classic story, the ones that really aren't written this way anymore, of the guy that started in a small town down in the south in Louisiana, working for a local radio station as a disc jockey, not a sports guy, but started making money, believe it or not, in the business as a teenager. Those stories just don't exist anymore. You'll hear him talk about the challenges that come with that, growing up in a family where his dad was in the entertainment business, not as a radio guy, but managing and working in a band and all that came with that, the challenges that come with working his way out of a small town and just being the guy that he's become all these years later, they're still involved in sports. You can hear this podcast every week on the SiriusXM app and of course, wherever you download your podcasts. Here now my conversation with Tim Brando. Tim, I have to tell you, it's been a long time since we saw each other. Uh, I will share right off the bat before we get into the pleasantries. I'm a little upset. I went to your Wikipedia page. Nowhere in it does it say anything about Sporting News Radio, one-on-one sports, which is where you and I actually met and worked together. It's got to be, what, 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, well, yeah, right around there. 2001 was when I started my show. You had... It had already become Sporting News Radio by the time I got there. Okay. Um, but uh, there's mention of the Tim Brando show in the in the Wikipedia that lasted almost 15 years. And I had from it started with Sporting News, obviously, okay, with you guys. And then uh, because of what happened to that network and my distribution was changing left and right, I wound up being televised on the fledgling CBS Sports Network, which still, by the way, doesn't get a Nielsen rating, so I really help them, <laughs> and uh, and going to Sirius XM for the last, I guess, four years of the show. And I was on literally in every day part except overnights. I think I started in afternoons when you were doing mornings yeah. uh, at Sporting News, and uh, I wound up doing mid-morning uh, as we closed it out after being um, in afternoon drive. I think I did Three to six, 12 to three, and then wound up nine to noon when we finally settled the issue and put it to bed. And, and I don't think people realize this. You were way ahead of your time because today, with what's going on around the world, we're all working from home. We're working over Zoom. Uh, Sporting News Radio was in Chicago, which is where mm-hmm. 7% of the staff was. And right. they, you know, when your time came up, we would say, Let's go to Tim Brando down in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is a town I'm (laughs) familiar with, having gone to Tulane, but I'm thinking nobody knows where Shreveport, Louisiana is. So you were broadcasting from home 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, I I turned the job down 
Bruce uh, immediately, and then uh, a, a name you'll a name you'll remember. Yeah, uh, Mark Jenskow. Oh yeah, uh, sure. came to play golf with me and to court me to come to work there, uh, and I gave him every imaginable no you can think of, and he just wouldn't accept it. And I said, well, I mean, I'm doing games and I'm in the studio at CBS and I'm, I just don't know how we can pull this off. And he says, well, you know, hey, we have the means to do this remotely now. We can do this from your home. So he, we played golf on my home course. We came to my house. I showed him the very study that you're, you and I are speaking to one another in right now. He said, Tim, we can, we can pull this off. You know, we have, we have lines that are, are mixed. It sounds like a studio now. Uh, through the phone lines and we can wire it with return uh, programming back in your ear. So we'll be good to go. And um, that was a time, I think, Bruce, when the radio business was, was changing and it seemed fashionable. Probably Dan Patrick started it. Um, and I think I came next. Uh, that The notion of bringing on television personalities to do radio. Yeah. Uh, became a fashionable thing. As a matter of fact, James Brown, JB, was hired at the same time I was hired right? Uh, to do, uh, I think, the show right after yours. And then I came on a few hours later uh, to do Afternoon Drive. So it, the, it was a lot of fun. I'd always, um, I'd always sort of dreamed of doing a national show from my hometown because of my uh, upbringing. My dad was a television and radio pioneer in my hometown. But uh, and he, he did a variety of shows, uh, entertainment shows. And um, I'd oftentimes thought, boy, if my dad's show could have been nationwide, what a hit he would have been because he was by far the most talented man I had ever been around. And so that was kind of a kick in the butt for me to be able to pull it off and do it that way. And we had a lot of fun with it. We really did. It, it, there were um, different uh, machinations and different, uh, circumstances under which we were able to move from one time slot to another. Uh, some of it was forced upon us. Some of it was by choice, but, uh, in every case, I, I, I really did enjoy it up until the time when I became exclusively a play-by-play caller, uh, which started when I went to Fox, uh, when I was doing primarily studio and coming to New York to do the studio, yeah. I could do my show at Mickey Mantles, which I did every Friday afternoon before I went up to CBS. Uh, on occasion, I went up to the Sirius Studios to do the show. There was never a problem if I had to go on remote somewhere and do a show. Uh, but when you're preparing to do games, nothing but games, the particular nature of preparation and having to be with coaches you know, when it's at their leisure uh, made it difficult to balance both. And that's why, uh, that's why I ultimately retired the show back in 2015. You know, you bring up the name Mark Janskow and, and what it reminds me of more than anything is, and I don't know that this has changed dramatically, you know, being at Sirius and working on NFL radio, when you travel to events, there's an expense account, but yeah, the boondoggles, yeah. I mean, when we were together at sporting news and, oh yeah. <laughs> and would go to events, Tim, I mean, this this is 20 years ago, and the lunch bills would be like $2,000, oh, yeah. and yeah. the drinks would be flowing. And now I go on remote, and I turn my expense sheet, and they go, well, you had two bottles of water on Thursday. What's what's up with that? I mean, <laughs> talk about the way things have changed with the giveaway, yeah. the shirts and the hats. That's a big difference. Yeah, it is. And uh, 
The other thing too is um, the discussions that we had and the, the way radio, I don't know about you, and I, I know you're busy with the NFL on a regular basis, but um, I have said this to many people who have, you know, from time to time will miss, say, I miss your show. You know, I, you, I get that a lot. And I'll say, well, you know, all due respect, I don't miss it. And the reason I don't miss it is because I know what I would have to be talking about were I on on, on a daily basis right. today. And honestly, I don't want to talk about those things. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I deal with them a little bit on Twitter now. Uh, and I and I actually and I and I do dip into it the cesspool probably more than I should. You gotta be but careful, on, Tim. Tim. But on, you do, but on radio, but on radio, you know, you've got to talk about what the topics of the day are. And yeah. so many of the topics of the day to me now are so tawdry, so, uh, you know, not sports related. Uh, it would be very uncomfortable for me to do that now. So I'm, and I never really, as much as I wanted to do radio at the national level and have my name on a show and do it from my hometown and maybe even in my house, sort of a dream come true. Um, I always deemed myself as a play-by-play -play broadcaster, a live event play caller. And I think that I was sending over time because of the way I went about my show. And as you know, I was lighthearted, entertainment oriented, uh, sort of, a, 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 you know, the the other side of my personality would come out. Uh, and at times it would be fun loving. At times it might be a little toxic. And I think I confuse people sometimes. And uh, I sent mixed messages about who I thought maybe I was uh, projecting as a broadcaster. So I'm really happy now to be everybody's guest, you know, to be America's guest and, uh, and to just go out and call games for Fox. You know, it's, it's funny, Tim, because now, now that you've seen both, you realize that radio presents such a different challenge, especially today, because television, as you say, you go on, you can be yourself, you can, you know, insert humor and you can do what you want, but there's no mm -hmm. social commentary. There's no right. editorializing. There's no, this is who I am when you pull back the curtain. And yeah. I'm sure you, I'm sure you even remember it, you know, from doing it recently, but we've gotten to the point now where you almost have to choose every word before it comes out of your mouth <laughs> for fear of what the reaction is going to be. And yeah. I don't remember it being that way when I got into radio. No, no. And again, um, uh, when I, and I did my show, even when we got it televised and by the way, uh, I'm not going to go in depth on it, but I'm asked often on this topic, you know, Tim, what, what happened between you and CBS? I'm asked that a lot, you know, because I left abruptly after an 18 year run. Uh, and let me just say, they desperately wanted me to do that radio show on television. They wanted to put it on their cable outlet. Uh, they did. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, Bruce, there were times I said to them, okay, as long as it's a radio show on television, I'm not doing TV suddenly. This is, I own the radio rights. You <laughs> want to put it on television. I'm still doing my show. Right. Um, I think a lot of times what translates on radio uh, makes people in television very uncomfortable. Very. I mean, very, very uncomfortable. And, uh, and it caused, it, it, you know, it wasn't the sole reason, but it certainly contributed uh, in terms of my of my exit at um, at CBS, which by the way was a 
mutual uh, and and a, and a wonderful parting. Actually, we had a we had a quality divorce. It was, I have nothing but good things to say about the people at CBS, the people I worked with, people I worked for. Uh, but but trying to burn the candle at both ends uh, for me, as I look back on it, was a mistake. I, yeah. I wish that I had not done it. I wish that I had not taken the radio show and put it on television for the very reasons that you you outlined. Were you putting makeup on? Yeah, yeah. My my <laughs> daughter handled that. You know, hell, I did I did makeup when I was doing rock and roll radio in college. I, I, I had to look good, you know. <laughs> It's telling me something. It's telling me something, Tim. If you were putting on makeup to do radio, I'm a little concerned right about now. Well, I was also doing TV. You know, when I was, uh, I don't know, if people, people of my generation were all disc jockeys at some point. I'm, I'm 64 years old, so you didn't start in this business without a third class radio operator's permit and turn on the automation machine at 2 a.m. in the morning after you did a 10 to 2 a.m shift on the weekends. That's what I was doing while I was in college. And I was also working as a weekend sports anchor at the NBC affiliate uh, in the summer of my senior year of high school and my freshman years of, and sophomore years of college. So I literally would get off the air at uh, about 10, 1030, something like that uh, at the um, uh, at the television station, then run over to the radio station and do overnights with my makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> working on weekends so you 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 know i was uh that was my lifestyle back then i I gotta tell you tim and and you're a little older than me not much i'm I'm 57 so Mm -hmm. i got my start in college radio too also doing overnights as a disc jockey right and i'm sure we share a lot of the same stories like if you had to go to the bathroom you had to pick a song long enough like in a gata devita so i could get there and get back I mean, everybody's got a story about leaving to go yeah. to the bathroom at three o'clock in the morning, coming back to a locked studio and watching the yeah. records spinning, coming to the end, going, what the hell am I going to do to get in? I mean, yeah. and yet, you know, I don't know if they were necessarily better, but you reflect on those times with such great happiness because it was yeah. so innocent and so yeah. much fun. And you didn't have a PD telling you what you did wrong or what you did right. It was just you That's having it. fun out there. Absolutely. Uh, I remember I was mentioning uh, I was doing overnights. Uh, from two to six in the morning. Yeah, me too. Just as they, that you got, I got on because automation ended. They finally decided they were going to have a live disc jockey on the weekends, and uh, so uh, I would do the sports cast, get off the air at ten thirty, pick up my date, go down to the to Shreve Square, have it, and have my date with me. And if I could coerce her to come up to the radio station with me for my two a.m. shift to start, that meant it was a really good night. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was sort of living out the, the role of Martin Mull in the movie FM. Totally. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, just get it, take a look at it. You'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and that same thought process, uh, Bruce, the way we lived our lives back then, and, and this is mid-70s to late 70s, uh, transfer that to the very humble days of cable television and, and be a fly on the wall in Bristol in 1985, 86, 87, which I was, uh, you talk about um, simpler times, but yet complex, but we didn't know because we were so young. We just were so happy to be working. We were doing things that had never been done before. And uh, those are still, for me, the, the, the best times of my, 
my career, the most enjoyable, you know, when you begin the relationships, you're doing things for the very first time. Um, that's, that's part of the journey, you know, and I sometimes talk to younger broadcasters, uh, wannabe broadcasters, people I mentor, and I'll always tell them, you know, the journey's the best part. You know, remember, you know, challenge yourself. And as you're being challenged, remember that you'll never forget that. You'll never forget your first opportunity to do this or your first opportunity to, to do that. And um, that, that those, those humbling days of FM rock and roll radio uh, to go along with uh, covering high school football as a 14 year old with my dad, uh, that's where I cut my teeth as a play-by-play guy. Um, I was working at a 50,000 watt radio station, KWKH calling games on the AM side and doing rock jock work on the FM side when I was 17 years old. That's pretty cool. That's a big That's station, cool. 50,000 watts. And and do you remember being in college and to be on the air, you had to go out and get an FCC license? You know, Right. Third class radio operator's <laughs> permit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you had to have like a, it was like a little yellow piece of paper that you had to have when you were on yeah. the air. Well, it turned yellow when you came up. It was light blue when I, <laughs> when I got mine. I could go pull it out for you. I've got it uh, in my desk, but, but uh, it was, um, and it was, you really had to study for it because I didn't know any to this day. I'm like, I never really used any of the information from it. It was like a, you know, a geometry class. I found a way to cheat to pass. That's sort of what I did with the third class radio (laughs) operators permit. I didn't, I really didn't utilize it at all. But yeah, that was because there were no engineers. If, right. if you were working there overnight and there was some problem, there was no engineer on staff during those hours. So if you didn't have it, you couldn't work. So that's how you, uh, you know, you got into the business. Yeah. I mean, if people would hear that and they'd be like, you know, I just remember the stress. <laughs> it's almost like yesterday of like having to pass that test before you could actually go in the studio. And I, the I, I, I lived in Shreveport, obviously. So I had to drive. And I actually got mine when I was 15 years old. And I was in the summer of um, 1971. Summer of 1971, I've done high school football as a ninth grader with my dad. I'm going to get a chance to maybe do some radio disc jockey work as a 15-year-old in the summer. And I was playing American Legion baseball. And we got through with the game. The next day we had off, didn't have to practice. I took a Continental Trailways bus to Dallas because that's where I had to go to get my FCC third class radio operators permit test how, done. How far is Dallas by bus from Shreveport? Three and a half. Three and a half hours. Oh, not, not as bad as I would have thought. Not too bad. No. It's about, uh, in those days, without Interstate 49, in those days, it took about five hours to get to New Orleans, which was the other place you'd have to go. Yeah, I was going to I, I was going to ask you as somebody that grew up in Shreveport and I don't think people realize how big Louisiana is mm-hmm. as a state. When I when I was in college, I was working for Cox Cable. Do you remember Cox Cable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I did Saints preseason games for Cox Cable. Okay. So I, I was doing I was doing high school football and Ruston was a great high school football team. John Errett was a great high school football team. Maybe they still are. I mean, you're, Neville you're, High School who played against Ruston was the school that my father and I called games for in 1971. Oh, is that right? Okay. We were in the same district with Ruston. I used to have to get out there for those games. And and as a college kid, I was thinking, who knew that you could actually drive for hours and hours and still be in the state of Louisiana? 
and yeah. it was way up there. Well, and you were having to go up uh, two lane highways uh, behind a bunch of cotton trucks in those days to come <laughs> from New Orleans to get to Ruston, Louisiana. Now we have, you know, an, an interstate, thankfully, um, that was postponed. You know why we had uh, such bad roads north and south in Louisiana all those years until no. really the last 15 to 20? The Superdome. When John McKithen and Hale Boggs, okay, Cokie Waters' dad, the late Cokie Waters' dad, Hale Boggs, tremendously influential senator from Louisiana, right, uh, along with Dave Dixon, uh, the founder of the USFL, and uh, had a wonderful art gallery in New Orleans. When they put together the plan and got McKithen to sign off on it to build the Louisiana Superdome, it was at the expense of a highway moving north and south. So that's one of the reasons we had to wait so long to get that. But, um, uh, you know, I remember McKithen saying, we're going to build a dome so big, they'll they'll put two Astrodomes in it. Right. I'll never forget that as a kid. Yeah. And I, I remember when I learned that you could put the Astrodome inside the Superdome and it wouldn't touch anything. And I was like, right, wow, like the coolest thing ever. But, yeah. but I do wonder, as a kid growing up in Shreveport, and New Orleans being so far away. And as you know, New Orleans is like this little oasis in the middle of, you know, mm -hmm. a southern state that was just like outrageous. Everything was like debauchery. Did your parents ever take you down there? And, and when oh, you, yeah. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. like going down there as a kid. Well, we take the train. We had back in those days, we had passenger trains. Uh, and during the state playoffs in football, uh, we would take the train. Uh, down to New Orleans, and uh, those were those were cool. It was when somebody talks about baseball back in the olden days, and how you know you had to take train rides to get to and from games, and you see these old movies, um, you know, Fear Strikes Out about Jimmy Pearsall, or <laughs> you know the 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 great uh, Lou Gehrig story. All those when you see train. Uh, segments where a player's going from one place to the other. That was high school football in the South and especially in Louisiana because no one wanted to drive uh, down the L Highway 1 or 71 in the state of Louisiana. But we had uh, trains and, and the railway system was awesome here. We had Kansas City Southern. We had uh, Pacific. We had Santa Fe. We had, we had great railroads and um we getting in those cars and being um i mean people dressed up to get on those things i mean i remember as a six or seven year old so this is like 62 63 uh my father was um a saint john's jesuit uh graduate and they had a great football team uh that won state championships in the, in class 3a and they'd go down and play lutcher and a lot of times the great teams from a higher classification like a Neville or like a Rustin would have to play John Eric or have to play um, um, Archbishop Rummel, or I'm trying to think of it, the Jesuit Blue Jays, the Jesuit uh, team that Hap Glaudy from New Orleans was from in the ninth ward. Uh, all those places uh, meant we had to, we had to go on the train. So uh, that was, that was a marvelous part of my upbringing. It really was. But but were your parents, this is my memory of New Orleans. My parents, uh, we, we drove down there when I was probably 15 years old. 
No, I, no, I was younger. I take it back. I was about, uh, I was about twelve. My sisters were fifteen. We were driving around the southern part of the country with my parents on vacation, and we went to the French Quarter. And my mom and dad, when we were walking down Bourbon Street, made me walk on the outside of them. And my mom said, "That's because it's tradition. Just in case a bus comes by and water squirts up, you would block the water." I learned later that they didn't want me to see all the women swinging out of the windows. And so, you know, it wasn't a place that was totally comfortable to be with your parents, if you know what right, I mean. Right, right. Your right. parents okay with all of that? Yeah, you know, uh, my dad, as I mentioned, was an entertainer, and he had a band that toured SAC air bases um, in places like Harmon, Newfoundland, Goose Bay, Labrador, uh, the Azor Islands. We played in Vegas, Hub Brando and the Dreamers. If you ever uh, <laughs> want to Google dad, you can find uh, one of his... Uh, 45 records it was put out so as a kid I was a little bit like an Air Force brat we were from Louisiana but we traveled a lot and uh, I had to have a musician's local 116 card because I was part of the act so uh, I would come on the bandstand with a with a uh, tuxedo and tie and um, uh, you know I would tug on my dad's tuxedo and he was a crooner and he had the uh, trombone and the band playing and I would want to, I would want to join the band and I would sing uh, me and my shadow and you're too old to cut the mustard anymore with my dad. And then I would play the drums uh, and do a, a wipeout segment, a uh, little, little mini Gene Krupa kind of thing. And to be in the band, Bruce, I had to be a member of the union. Otherwise I couldn't get into the, the bars and the, and the airman's club and the uh, NCO clubs at these, at these SAC air bases. So I went into these places as a kid a lot. We had, we had um, some of those types of places over in Bossier City, just over the river in Shreveport. Highway 80 in Bossier was sort of a, 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 a mini Sin City. Uh, in fact, people from Shreveport called it Sin City. <laughs> and Dad's band would play at a club there called the Stork Club. And, uh, you know, I would go in with the band and play and be a part of – he. What, what we called um, floor show band. It was a floor show band. So it was entertainment and music. And uh, that, that was one of my dad's television shows was putting that variety show together with his band. So uh, I was introduced to that kind of thing, the kind of thing that you'd see with regularity in New Orleans uh, from the time I was six or seven years old moving forward. Do you remember what the, I'm always curious about this, what the fee for the band was for the night and what it cost to get in to see the band? No, that I couldn't tell you, but I do know scale for a kid playing a drum and singing with his, with his dad's band. I got 4250. That's scale. 4250? For every show. That's a, that's a lot. That's a, in 1962, oh. three, four, five. That's really a lot. Forty-two uh, fifty. I mean, you're making guys with jobs in town to work for. I a think night. the band. I think the actual band members, many of whom were still underage, they were. My dad was one of his shows was called Search for Talent, Hub Brando Search for Talent. He was sort of a mini Ted Mack, mini Ed McMahon, Star Searched type yeah. of show. Sure. And he would find these really talented young people, and he would get their parents to allow him to put them in his show. And then he'd take the show on the road. That's essentially what Hub Brando and the Dreamers were all about. And um, a lot of them went on to become, uh, we had one guy that was a guitar player and singer, a dead ringer for Glenn Campbell. 
he went out to uh, L.A. and he he made a huge career uh, writing scores for uh, plays as well as um, uh, writing and singing and performing a lot of jingles uh, for uh, he did one for Marie Callender's out in uh, Burbank that blew me away. I knew right away who it was. So he he discovered a lot of young people and um, because I was his kid and I was along for the ride, so to speak. I'm still blown away by the fact that that you were getting paid forty two fifty yeah. back then. I mean, that's yeah. like you got you you probably had girls and you were taking them out and <laughs> you'd spend on it. I mean, come on, Tim, that that's a lot well, of money. You know, if if the band hadn't broken up, Bruce, I'm, I'm in the midst of uh, putting together a book, um, and it's memoirs, but it's also about the journey. It's kind of a how, what to do, what not to do book. You know, with a broadcasting career. If if uh, if the band hadn't broken up and my mother and father hadn't separated, and that happened when I was 11 years old, uh, I don't know how screwed up my life might have been. Because being introduced to that kind of lifestyle and thinking you're, you know, and my dad sort of raised me to be, hey, you're a talented kid. Walk in like you own the joint. You know, that's the way I was raised. Uh, I don't know how screwed up I might have been if, if I'd stayed in the entertainment end of things you know suddenly i had to become a regular kid when when the band broke up and the shows ended and dad went into the uh the hotel he started investing in hotels and he allowed the music end of the hotels to be sort of his sidelight you know he was basically in the franchise hotel business uh and that enabled me to um have a chance to work with him doing play-by-play as a um as a 14 year old, he knew what I really wanted to do. He knew I wanted to be a sportscaster. Right. But if I had been able to taste that kind of lifestyle, say through high school, <laughs> oh my God, I don't know how screwed up I might have been. So I, I may not have made it this far. <laughs> but but I, I didn't know that your parents split up when you were 11. So, I mean, you know, times have changed now. There's custody exchange. Did you live with your mom? Yeah. Yeah. So, dad so, went out to California. Your dad went dad to California. Went to, so you yeah, had no real. You didn't really weren't involved in that in that show business lifestyle anymore after that. None, no, no. I, and 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 you know that's a really awkward time to suddenly be. Okay, now what? You know, it was sort of yeah. awkward. But my timing was a lot better than I had an older sister that was eighteen. It was really hard on her, much harder on her, uh, because my dad was the light of her life, and suddenly he was gone. But um, for me, I had time to rebound and time to get some traction. But um, I love sports, and I never, never stopped dreaming of being a sportscaster. Kurt Gowdy, I was always talking about Gowdy and Keith Jackson and uh, Chris Schenkel and all the guys I was watching, Jim McKay, all the guys I was watching on television back then, Jack Buck, Ray Scott, you name it. Uh, I was all over them. I knew everything about them. I could even name obscure guys that were doing play-by-play really? back in that era. Oh, yeah. Jack Drees, who lived in Mobile, Alabama. One of the great broadcasters that died too soon, Bill Ennis, who was down in Houston. Uh, he died of a heart attack. Frank Gleber, who really was the precursor to Vern Lundquist in Dallas, died way too soon uh, in his 50s. Uh, he was doing Cowboys games when Staubach was playing. You know, people forget about those guys. I, they're etched in my gray matter uh, or colored gray matter forever. But I, <laughs> I, uh, that that period for me, uh, without my father uh, around on a daily basis, actually helped me grow up a lot, I think. Uh, I had to kind of 
you know, cowboy up a little bit and realized that I, I needed to make good decisions and at the same time counsel him. You know, uh, he, he and I maintained a really good relationship, uh, which is tough to do dur- at that time uh, when, you, when your mom and dad uh, split up and it's 1966 or seven. That was an ugly thing. You know, that was a devastating thing to have happen. It was yeah. not nearly as normal. And particularly in a Catholic family like ours, it was almost unheard of. So uh, it could be damaging. And um, but I but I think maintaining the relationship that I did with my father uh, helped get me to where I am today. Because as I said, he he came back. He went to California, started doing some screenplay writing, and uh, and I think he felt in Louisiana where he'd been for so long that he never really gave himself the chance that he needed. So going out to LA was going to be something he needed to do. Uh, and he tasted that a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, I think he started to vicariously live through, uh, me a little bit and he wanted to help. So he invested in some hotels. One was in Monroe, Louisiana. And that's how, uh, the Neville high school gig came my way. He had a radio station, uh, owner that was from Monroe that knew all about dad's having put two television stations on the air in Shreveport. And the guy came over to him and said, uh, Hub, I need a guy to call my Neville High School games. And I know you're here. I don't know if you have the time to do it, but I'd love for you to do it. And my dad said to him, well, uh, his name was Ollie Bales. He said, um, Ollie, I'd be happy to do it as long as you let me pick the guy that works with me. And of course, he had no idea it was his 14-year-old son. <laughs> but that's how it all started. Pure nepotism is how I got it in front of a microphone uh, as a ninth grader. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was going to ask, and, you know, it's it's great ending to the story because I'm thinking 11 years old, parents get divorced, dad moves to California. You know, today you can get on and Zoom with them. You can be texting. You know, back then, A, long distance calls were expensive. You weren't getting on a plane to fly out there from Shreveport. No. And I mean, no. you said you maintained the relationship. That could not have been easy. No, a lot of letter writing. A lot, of letter, yeah, a lot of letter writing. And uh, and I think the other thing, too, is when you're so much like the person that's gone, you know, your sensitivities, your he sort of knew how I was feeling. He could kind of cut to the chase in a letter, really stimulate me. And, uh, you know, I think by the time he got back and was able to invest in the hotel, I, I took it as something of a uh, a real gift. Uh, from God that he was able to get uh, back to Louisiana and have this hotel that was only a hundred miles away from Shreveport. And so we could at least see one another from time to time. And um, interestingly, because we're talking about it now, uh, that year was 1971, uh, which means next fall, 2021, I'll be celebrating my 50th anniversary calling ball. Wow. Uh, either high school or college, it'll be 50 years and I will still be 64 years old. So that's, um, think about that. That's yeah, pretty no, wild. That's, that's not a, many people can say that. Not you know, I, I, I got to tell you, Tim, I think it's interesting because I don't know what your mindset was when you got into the business all those years ago, but I remember getting into it um, with WFAN in 1987 when, when they launched All Sports Radio. You took about four of our broadcast associates from ESPN over yeah, there, right. Goldberg. I could, th- I can, sir, I can, I can name off a few of them. <laughs> Goldberg being one of them, uh, and several others that came at that time. Uh, and 
Everybody said it would never work. It'll never work. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I, I've told the story a number of times, but I was working for my dad at the time in the real estate business. And I told him he knew I wanted to be in the broadcast business, having done so in college. And I said I was going out for this interview. And then I told him I got the job. And he said, well, you'll be back here in like two months. This can't work. And here we sit some 30 something years later and look at what the business has become. Yeah. But, but I, I, you know, I, I think that it's, um, it's amazing to think because my instincts back at the time was this will be great. This will be fun. But I thought it was like rock and roll. I thought by the time you're 40, you're going to be too old to do it. Like, what am I going to do when I'm 41? And then I got to 41 and I said, I, I think I can still do this for a couple more years, but what am I going to do when I'm 50? So yeah. I don't like, didn't, didn't, when you got into this, didn't you think this was a young man's business? You know, I don't think that I did. You did. No, I know. I really, no, I don't. I don't. And I think the reason I didn't was because so many of the people I looked up to were so much older than me. Um, I'll give you some examples. Um, and not just broadcast, not just sportscasters, by the way. Uh, I had immense respect and still do for the guys out. In, I used to, because dad was out in California, when I had opportunities in the summer, I would go out with him. He'd come back home, pick me up. We'd drive 32 hours or, you know stop over in Flagstaff one night and, you know, needles the next, right. Uh, in the, in the canyons, uh, trying to get out there. So we took a lot of long rides to California together, but I dreamt of, of being, if I couldn't be the sportscaster, all right. If you went out to LA in the late seventies, you would hear, um, a guy like Wink Martindale, doing the midday shift on KMPC radio. Yeah. Became a great okay. game Wink show. Martin, Wink Martindale, one of the classic game show hosts yeah. from Jackson, Tennessee, by the way, just outside Memphis. Yeah. Uh, or you'd hear um, Jeff Edwards, another outstanding game show host. Yeah. He did, he did mid-afternoons on KMPC. Uh, the, the, the great voice from Laugh-In, Gary Owens, uh, yeah. did, did, uh, the afternoon drive on KMPC and, and I watched these guys, uh, Gene Rayburn, Bob Barker, uh, Tom Kennedy. These guys were to me legendary and they all did basically really for the most part, three hour radio shows on a daily basis. Right. Most of them talk, some would sprinkle some music in, but then whenever there was an opening for a game show, they were part of this cattle call. You know, whether it was Tic-Tac-Doe or, uh, you know, Card Sharks or, you know, name the show. They were all out there doing that. And I thought to myself, uh, hell, if I can't get a sports casting job, I could do that, you know. And uh, uh, one of the things I'm sure you said you looked at my wiki and you were looking through some stuff. Probably the job I didn't get that that has followed me more than uh, anything that I ever really did in my career was uh, my audition for Wheel of Fortune uh, in the summer of 1988 when um, the opportunity presented itself. The daytime version of Wheel was on NBC and Sajak was getting a, a nightly uh, talk show to go up against Carson right. on CBS. And they would not allow him uh, at CBS as part of his deal to stay on the NBC daytime version. So it created this opening. Well, I'm, I'm two years into living in Bristol and my agent, who was in L.A. at the time, calls me and says, Merv Griffin likes your work. He wants you to come out for an audition. Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin. 
And I'm like, what? I mean, I'm doing game day with Bino Cook and Lee Corso. I'm two years in and I'm thinking, okay, I'm 32 and the world is my oyster. And now I'm going out to, to audition for this thing. And you know what? I watched uh, Sajak do three shows. The guys on the crew recognized me from ESPN. They all watched late at night. I was doing, you know, sports centers and whatever. And um, gosh, I thought I got the job. I did it in one take. Um, if you Google it, you can find it. It's there. And <laughs> somebody on the black market got a hold of it. And uh, I thought the job was mine. Uh, the, the associate producers for Merv loved me. Nancy Jones, who had worked for Chuck Barris in L.A. And uh, I thought this was going to be my gig. And I was going to be the new Chuck Woolery or the new, you know, Sajak. And um, uh, the kicker from the San Diego Chargers, Rolf Banershka, got the yep. job. Who yep. had no television experience whatsoever. Uh -huh. And after he got on the show, it was like uh, six weeks later, they canceled it. It bombed and it, and, and it was gone. And uh, it shows up like a year or two later. And Bob Goyne, who I think of late, I think you probably saw him most recently on Entertainment Tonight, maybe 20 years ago. He got the gig and he was a former sportscaster. I, I always looked up to people that were so much older than me that I really never thought that I would ever get too old to do what I do. And the other thing, Bruce, is I love doing it so much. When I say love doing it, yeah, yeah, I love college football. Yeah, I love college basketball. And I tell kids this all the time. You know, it's not just about loving the sport. Okay, you got to love being on. You got to love being on. Whatever airwaves you're on, you got to love being on. And that genuinely comes through. People know when they're watching people having fun, that they're absolutely really enjoying themselves and are comfortable enjoying themselves. Not everybody can be that way. Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that not only did I envision being where I am now, but I still believe my best shows are out in front of me. I, I still believe that the tread on my tire is still <laughs> strong and that I can go for another 10 to 12 years. Well, not me. I'm pretty sure my best work is way behind me. <laughs> I know that. But, you know, we only have a couple of minutes. I, I know you yeah. got one. I, there's two things I wanted. First of all, you bring up the game show thing. And yeah. I think how different your life would be had you got it. But, you know, I also think about, you know, we're at an age where we can remember. You know, game shows was such an important part of our childhood landscape. Joker's wild. Now right. it's Jeopardy and, and Wheel of Fortune. But, I mean, game shows were everywhere when we were kids. Yeah, and there was a and there was a special guy that did it. You know, now unfortunately, okay, they get worn out B actors, right? Or or whoever signed with ABC and they want to work him to death. Like you know, God bless Michael Strahan; he's very talented. Right. But they're going to put Michael on everything that they've got. Okay, right. that's just the nature of the beast. Right. Who do we have under contract? We don't <laughs> want to pay anymore for this crap. Right. So just okay, we'll tell Strahan he's got to do this too. So that that's what they do. But in those days, Bruce, th those guys were special, you know. Uh, I still believe to organize, uh, doing uh, Wheel was actually a pretty easy rehearsal to me. I had no problem with it, just working with dummy cards and getting stage managing cues. You know, you don't have an IFB, so everything you're doing, there's no producer talking to you while you're talking, as we have in sports. But I thought it was a pretty easy thing to figure out, you know. Um, 
the, the only thing I really had to memorize was when the, you spin the wheel, you know, the top dollar value on the wheel is $500. Do not hit bankrupt because if you do, you lose your cash, but not your merchandise. Now here's the puzzle. I mean, that was really not the only thing you had to commit to memory. Everything else was, you know, uh, just know where you are on the set. But for Bob Barker to do all those different games that oh. they had for him to do on Price is Right, yeah. and he was pushing 90 while he was doing it, yeah. that's just incredible to me. You know, what a what a lucid uh, gentleman that guy had to be to be able to pull all, all that off for yeah. so many years. Yeah, and I think, you know, you have to be – Gene Rayburn always had that quick – there were just some guys. I don't know. I love game shows when I was a kid. Yeah, um, And now too. we have a game show channel, but I don't think kids really – embrace it nearly as much all right so so tell me you've been in broadcasting for a long time you've crossed paths with thousands of people obviously i think what people don't realize and i want to get a great story from you before we get out yeah. but you know you said you have you know you have to be on the one thing people always say to me is is about that like you know just what it's like to do radio every day and i said the one thing people don't appreciate is you can't have a bad day at work <laughs> you know, when, 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 you know no. somebody sits in an office and their wife was giving them a hard time or their kids are in they they close the door and you yeah. know they take care of their stuff you turn on that microphone well that light goes on you better be in a good mood yeah yeah absolutely it's um the only thing i do when i'm not uh, when i'm not having fun on the air that brings me joy is golf because right. while i'm playing yeah. golf all I'm thinking about is hitting the white ball and hitting it really well. And hopefully in fewer times in this round than I did the round before. Okay. <laughs> That's what golf is. Yeah. Uh, it's a discipline that teaches you some humility. And as a type A like me, I really needed to learn that discipline. I needed, I needed to be humbled. Uh, I don't think that word and me were associated together very much in my, in my youth. So as I've gotten older, I appreciate, I think, um, struggling at something and, and knowing if you suck, this is what you have to do to be better. And, and golf is a discipline that helped me in that regard. Um, but, but I would see this a lot of times, Bruce, with guys that were in our business that were really talented, but we're not going to make it. And the reason they weren't going to make it is because they could not get rid of their own lives noise. The noise from their lives, whether it was from a parent, uh, a spouse, uh, children, whatever, okay? If you can't, when you shut that, uh, when that red light comes on, okay, it's Zen mode. And yeah. you got to be totally fixed on what you're doing and how you're servicing the people that, um, that are listening to you or watching you. You know, and if you can't do that, you know, forget about it. And it's still, and I tell this because my dad's been gone since I was 29. My first year at ESPN, he passed away of cancer, colon cancer, got him at 58. Hmm. And, uh, uh, but he saw me make it, you know, he saw me get to the promised land. He was able to turn on a television in, in uh, Toluca Lake, California and see his son do a basketball game on ESPN. That was really cool for me. And I'm so glad that he lasted that long, you know, to see some of what I wanted to accomplish come true. But when I look at that red light now, and whether it's the tally light uh, while doing radio, or if it's the tally light on the camera while I'm looking into the camera on a Saturday afternoon, 
I really believe that if, if I'm looking at that light and seeing my father, okay, as a symbol of the audience that I have in front of me, I never sought approval from anyone more than I did my dad. So I let that light get into my soul so that I am hopefully pleasing to the audience. You know, it's so funny you say that because my, my dad is still with me and I, I still think he's my biggest fan. I always say, I may only have one listener, but I know it's my dad. And <laughs> you know I, he's there. Yeah. And sometimes I say to myself, when I'm about to say something, would he approve of this? And it yeah. kind of guides you through, you know, what you have right. to do. All right. Before you go right. real quick, again, an extraordinary career. Outside of the lunches and dinners that we had in your stint at Sporting News Radio, mm -hmm. is there one, you know, I'm sure you have a million great stories. I always reflect on a story in college when I did a, an entire Tulane baseball game. Did I, what I think is the best interview I ever did only to come back to Tulane and they said, yeah, the phone line dropped like in the first inning, you weren't actually on the air. I mean, do you have, do you have like one story that you love to share with people? Oh, God. well, there's, there's actually so many. Um, I mean, I know, really this, this was an unfair question. I know if you work there, there are so many, um, you know, I could go on and on about relationships with, um, so many people that I was with throughout my career where it was, you know, Bino cook who couldn't pronounce the letter L and, uh, as a result, because he couldn't pronounce the letter L, uh, I would do my absolute best on game day at the prodding of the producers to get him to say LSU and UCLA in the same sentence. Couldn't okay. pronounce an L and it was on TV. Amazing. And it was on television. It was that just deep sort of Pittsburgh uh, accent of his. And we used to also do a, uh, an over under count on the number of Bino's chins every Saturday. Oh God. Nine, <laughs> ten. <laughs> on a good day, with maybe a little less cholesterol at breakfast, maybe seven, <laughs> but it was more than seven. You, we'd set the over under at eight usually, uh, but to get him to say, I was something like uh, uh, beans. You know, two teams really struggling. Uh, Terry Donahue's club with the Bruins out in the Pack Eight, and uh, <laughs> certainly in the SEC, the Bayou Bengals are struck. How boy, football, Bradto. How could how could UCLA have have a a bad year? Terry, he's gone to Rose Bowls. I get it. But I mean, they're two and five. You're UCLA. You can't be two and five with all the kids, with the material that you got. And LSU. I mean, LSU. Oh, how can you be 0 and 4? It's, it's unbelievable. You're in the Southeast Conference. And by the way, and this, by the way, Brando, something to remember. And, and, and most, in most sports, they hang the coach in effigy in the South, they hang them in person. <laughs> oh, and, and Bino, I, I always used to picture him as not a guy with nine chins. I pictured him with no neck. His yeah. Chin, yeah. <laughs> his chin ran into his, his jacket. It just dis yeah. everything yeah. Kind of disappeared down his shirt. He was unreal. And, and uh, my first show ever on ESPN was January 5th, 1985. Right. That's where in a lot of ways, the launching pad for my career started. I'll never forget it. I was doing Duke. They were number two in the country. Uh, it was it was uh, it was uh, Tommy Amaker and Johnny Dawkins the year before they went to their first Final Four. Sure, Billis uh, was not on the team yet. Uh, so Danny Mahar, the kid from Canada, was playing with Mark Allery and and those guys. And uh, 
I'm working with a producer named Bobby Feller. I think he still does a lot of tennis out there now. Bobby was a dead ringer for John Oates. He looked just like John Oates. In fact, I think he picked up women on the road claiming to be John Oates. <laughs> anyway, without hole. Yeah. <laughs> he was working. He was working with us, and uh, I was. To me, it's like an on-air audition. Uh, this has got to be good. In '85, Dixon. He's been on the air for six years. He's already kind of becoming a culture, uh, a cult hero uh, right. of sorts. Right. And I'm just trying to get the phone to ring a little bit more, you know. So we do. We're at halftime of the game, and uh, he gets up and walks away. And so I'm visiting with a few other people around, and I look across the way, and I see Dick is on a landline. He's on the phone talking with someone. Bobby Feller, our producer, says to me. Brando, you got to get Vital. Where is he? I said, well, he's over there. He's on the phone. He says, oh, God, really? He's on the phone? I said, yeah. Who could he be talking to? He says, he's talking to Garth, trying to find out if you guys sound good. And I went, what? <laughs> Who's Garth? He says, Howie Garfinkel, five-star camp. I went, are you kidding me? I'm not, I'm not, I'm pretty insecure but I, I mean, I'm not that insecure I, and I'm not kidding. You. He's coming back and I'm just hoping that the report from Garth was good. <laughs> right. So he sits down next to me and as he's sitting down, he puts his arm around me, you know, and because my name ended in a vowel, it made it easier for Dick, you know, to Goomba, let me tell you, he says, <laughs> yeah. Garth, Garth says, you sound great with me. I mean, I sound great always but you, you sound great with me. <laughs> so it was exactly what the producer said. I felt good about it. And uh, when the game ended, uh, about two days later, I started getting calls from Scotty Connell and Ellen Beckwith to do everything from uh, popcorn boxing with Al Bernstein to PKA karate to, you know, ping pong, whatever sports none of the other guys wanted to do. Uh, that's how I got my in uh, in Bristol. So those those two guys stick out in my mind whenever somebody asks me about stories in our business. Yeah, that's some great stuff. And of course, that's why we're here today chatting about it. But uh, I'm going to let you go, Tim. I, I loved catching up. You know, people may not know it, but you and I have known each other for, as you said, 20 years. Um, we spent a lot of time together back then. We don't seem to speak or see each other very much now, but I really enjoyed catching up. That was great. Well, we got to change that. I'll never forget. As a matter of fact, we mutual friend of ours, Steve Hers, yeah, who was, was representing you, I think at the time, the last time I think we saw one another and I just joined the, his agency with the Montag group just this oh, okay, past good. spring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, he had just started with Bob and Gary Rosen at RLR back in those days. And the last time I saw you, uh, it was in front of the old Regal Royal Hotel on West 54th between 6th and 7th. That's where CBS put us up when I was hosting college football every Saturday. And I saw you and Steve. I want to say he was he was just a couple of years into the business at that point. Uh -huh. And you and he were really, really tight. And uh, I remember that vividly when I heard uh, uh, Andrew Emmer tell me that you were going to be in contact with me. So yeah. um, that's the last time I think we saw one another. That's a, that's a that while was ago. a few years. That was a few years removed from uh, my joining up with Sporting News. That probably was two thousand five or six, somewhere in there. Yeah, Steve was actually my agent when I was at Sporting News a long time ago. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. it has been great catching up. Thanks, Tim. All the best, Bruce. My pleasure. And anytime.
Well, there you go. A fun conversation with Tim Brando, who, again, you hear the voice and you just it just makes you comfortable, especially if you're a sports fan. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can hear my podcast every Thursday on the SiriusXM app and, of course, wherever you download your podcasts. I hope you'll join me next week on Thursday. I'm Bruce Murray.